you have a Bible, let's open it up to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. So next week, uh, we are starting a, a new series in Hebrews and would encourage you to read through the book of Hebrews and, and prepare for that. But uh, Rich and I had the privilege over last week and this week to uh, bring some topical messages uh, to kind of recalibrate the vision of who we are and, and how we live out our faith as a church. And this passage is near and dear to my heart. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beth, how about you come on up? She's going to read the passage for us. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13. So as we usually do, please stand as we show reverence to God's Word as, as Beth reads from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you that you have directed our steps here to this church building. But more importantly, we thank you for the work that has been accomplished through Jesus and the implications of that in our lives. Lord, we will, we will glory in our Redeemer, the one who has called us to himself, the one that will continue to walk with us until that day that we see the Lord Jesus face to face. Lord, I pray for 
uh, our network here, as many uh, people are gathering under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray just that you would use Chad in a mighty way to build up that body over in Windsor. Would you use Aaron as he speaks the truth of your word from Mark in um, to this, this new church plant, this church restart over in, over in Greeley. And Lord, would you use it? Uh, we know that your word does not return to you void. And so, Lord, we pray just that you would use your messengers, your ambassadors here now this morning. Uh, Lord, I also want to pray for David Morgan, a uh, dear brother who came and preached to us this summer as he heads down to Mexico uh, to get trained up as a missionary in preparation for uh, a lifelong, Lord willing, uh, ministry to the Middle East. Lord, we pray just that you would be with him and his wife and their children. Lord, would you really uh, do the heavy lifting of uh, shaping and molding their hearts and equipping them with the tools needed, the language. Uh, and Lord, we, we just ask that you would uh, be honored through the labors. And as it's a, a joy to partner with him as a church and, and to send him off, Lord, we, uh, we pray just that you would be with him and encourage him and remind him of, of truth. And Lord, as he does want to head over to the Middle East someday, Lord, our, our hearts are towards uh, the folks over there and in Afghanistan in particular. Lord, we know that uh, there are people there who know you, who love you, who want to proclaim the hope that we have in Christ amidst such a, such a crisis. Um, Lord, as, as the world uh, rages and looks for answers and wants to blame or wants to take credit, Lord, we know that you are on your throne. You are accomplishing your purposes. You do all that you please. But God, we pray for the believers that are over there here and now. God, would you keep them safe physically? God, we, we just ask as uh, there, there is going to be persecution, as people will give their lives for the sake of the gospel. Lord, I pray just that it would uh, create a ripple effect in that region and in that country of more people to come to know you, to find the hope not in a religious system, but a hope, the hope of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are over there who are suffering. We pray just that you would draw near to them, help them. Lord, we pray for our military, just that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them uh, boldness, and that you would protect them as well and use them to protect other people and bring about uh, their, their good and their safety. So, we trust you for these things. You are a big God, and that's why we pray to you. Lord, I pray just as we open up your word here and now, just that it would be uh, helpful, encouraging to us. And Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, it's the fall time, kind of. We still got another month of summer, but school has started. If you haven't noticed in our town, the, the CSU students are back. Classes start tomorrow, and it kinda, it's kind of like an ant colony there around the campus, right? Like they just, they just take over all the streets and the neighborhoods, and they're, and they're walking around there. And it, it brings actually back some fond memories when I was a freshman at CSU back in 2004, Man, that was a, a unique time in my life. Uh, it seems like eons ago, but um, it, was, it was a fun time, I would say, because as I came to Colorado State from Dallas, kind of had this like newfound freedom. I was away from my parents' domain, and I could try my hand at a number of different things, and it was enjoyable. 
had, had pleasure. I mean, growing up in Texas, you can't snowboard, but I did that as much as I can. Uh, I also played on the hockey team at CSU and had some good recognition from my coaches and my teammates. And those teammates, we, uh, we had some good times. We had some good times on the ice, won some games, uh, got into some fights. We also uh, had some good times off the ice. And, uh, you know, in the words of Nacho Libre, I would, I would define my, my life as, my life is good, really good. Well, the, the only stipulation that my parents gave me when I came to CSU was, hey, go to class and make good grades. I eventually figured out how to hack that system that I could still make good grades without going to class. Uh, they weren't my grades, but that's a story for another time. Uh, but as I continued in my college career over the years, um, that, that kind of proverbial well of seeking my own pleasure ran dry. And as I was trying my hand at a number of different things, I, I hit this low in my college career. I got cut from the hockey team. My girlfriend dumped me. Wah, wah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was getting some D's and an F in my classes. My parents are like, you better figure it out or we're going to bring you home to Texas. And so my life was not good at that time. Well, then I had Doug come into my life. Now, Doug was a teammate on the hockey team. Doug had walked with me for a couple of years, and Doug's life was a little bit different than ours. And Doug came up to me and he said, Smitty, I see what you're living for. I know what you're trying your hand at. And let me tell you, I got something better for you. And the crass self was like, oh yeah, Doug, what's that? He said, it's Jesus. I said, huh, how's that work? He said, I want you to come to a Bible study with me. I said, what? You got to be kidding me. He said, yeah. And Doug was real persistent and he wouldn't let me off the hook. And eventually I said, okay, I'll come to your stupid Bible study. But it was at that time in my life, the summer of 2008, so I'd been at CSU for about four years now, that God had really been working through the circumstances of my life. And so I walk into this Bible study, and there's this group of young men. And they're different from my hockey teammates. They're different from any group of friends that I had ever had before. It's because they were living their life in light of what Jesus had done for them, but they also had this joy. They liked to have fun. They weren't these stiffs who were just so boring, which was my stereotype of guys in a Bible study. But then over time, I began to open up to them and share with them, hey, this is who I am. This is what I've been living for. And it was clearly a, a sinful lifestyle. And I was preparing myself for a rejection. Like, you got to get out of here. You don't belong here. But what I got was the exact opposite. These guys cared for me. They loved me. They welcomed me. And more than that, they proclaimed the gospel to me. And it was very tangible, that gospel that they were proclaiming to me because they lived it out. And what they had is what I wanted. And it wasn't this mental, yes, I believe in this. Now, there's, there's an, an importance to that. But it was more so they knew Jesus. And I wanted to know this Jesus that they had lived their lives for, that they had shared with me. 
So shortly after that, gave my life to the Lord, and then I got connected here at the Crossing Church. It was unlike any other church I had ever been a part of. Now, we were a lot smaller than this. We weren't meeting in this church building. In fact, it was a small uh, Bible study in Aaron's living room. <laughs> and these people, they had a reverence for the Scriptures. There was a, a depth that they wanted to know God with, which I appreciated. But more than that, they cared for each other like I had never seen before. Similarly to what I saw the care in that Bible study with a bunch of college men. But in the context of the church, babies, children, singles, parents, middle-aged folks, silver saints. And it was, it was incredible. But more than that, they wanted to bring more people into it. They wanted to care for each other and care for the world around them by proclaiming Christ, bearing burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And it was attractive to me. Some of you who are here in this room were there that day, many years ago. It's about 2009. And so one of the major aspects that drew me into this church, and that still draws me into this church, is what drew me to God Himself, is that when we share our lives, it has a particular appeal to the gospel. And so in our passage this morning, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see an appeal to the gospel and how the Apostle Paul shared his life with this church that he planted just a couple years before and how it radically changed them. And then it changed many more people in the region. And then the gospel continued to spread around the world to the fact that we're here today. <laughs> So, an authentic appeal from the gospel. That's my main point that we're talking about here. I've got three sub-points for that. We're going to talk about the motivation of the appeal. We're going to talk about the method of the community. And then we're going to take a look at the missional fruit. I've got a handful of stories that I hope are inspiring to you guys as I've been along this journey for a little while. Well, let's start with, with point number one. The motivation of the appeal. So here in 1 Thessalonians, I realize we're kind of like dive-bombing right into this book that we haven't been preaching through. So I will just let you know that the, the author is the Apostle Paul. He planted this church not two years before. He's writing a letter back to them to encourage them, to teach them, instruct them how to live the Christian life in general, but more in particular, how to anticipate the Lord's coming how to prepare for the second coming of Jesus. And so, Paul, he, he came here, proclaimed the gospel, people came to faith. We see this in Acts chapter 17. But then, once he left, shortly after that, there was some opposition, some opponents that came in, and they started to question, or I would even say belittle, Paul's message and the authenticity of it. And so Paul is, is really writing 1 Thessalonians, and what we see in our passage is that he's appealing to the motivation of the gospel, of why he came in the first place. And so let's look at it. He says here in verse 1, he says, For you yourself know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Not in vain. Not hollow. Not empty-handed. Verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, 
As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So there's a little bit of backstory here in Acts chapter 16. Paul is in Philippi and he's shamefully treated. He's um, persecuted. He's ran out of the city. And then he goes to Thessalonica right after that. And he's, and he's hitting on this idea of there was hardship in our coming to you. We could have just taken it easy, but no, we had boldness all the more to declare the gospel to you. But again, we're talking about the motivation of why. Why did he do this? And I think it's highlighted chiefly in this passage, mainly in what he did not do. Verse 3, he says that they didn't come with error or impurity or deception. Verse 5, he didn't have the motive of greed or flattery or seeking his own glory. You see, in Paul's day and age, there were many itinerant preachers that would come through these towns and share a message and try to get money from people and then just move on. And Paul's opponents are hammering on that idea. This is what he did. You guys have fallen for it again. But no. What Paul's saying here is that he came with truth. He came with conviction. Full hands, ready to share. His motives were not to build them up or build himself up or to get money out of them. So what was it? What was it? Well, I think we see a a genuineness and authenticity from Paul with his appeal. In verse 7, this is really interesting. He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And as I was thinking about this this week and understanding Paul's journey to Thessalonica and Paul's life himself, for those of you who don't know, the the Apostle Paul was a zealous man who would kill Christians before he came to know Jesus. And so how does a man like Paul go from killing Christians to comparing himself to a gentle nursing mother? the grace of God. It's the grace of God at work in someone's life. See, the Apostle Paul, he gives a bit of his resume in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. He calls himself a Pharisee, persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Essentially what that means is in order to be accepted by God, You couldn't find blame in him. Paul was the man. Or else, or really, he thought he was the man until he met the God man, the Lord Jesus. And he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 Whatever gain I have, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For Him I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The grace of God showed up in a mighty way in Paul's life. And I would argue the grace of God has shown up in a mighty way in everyone's life who comes to know Him because we're all rebels on our own path. Now, we might not be killing Christians, but that doesn't mean that we didn't need the grace of God just like Paul did. 
And so the Apostle Paul, he has this mental understanding of justification by faith. He's approved, he's accepted by God by his faith. But it goes way beyond that. He knows God Himself through Jesus. And it changed His life. It changed His life. It's not just that His guilt had been assuaged or that the verdict came down and He was not guilty. There is great and glorious truth with that. Justification by faith, I would say, is the linchpin doctrine that the church rises and falls on. But more than that, He knew the very heart of the one who gave that verdict. He knew the heart of God Himself. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. He says, Take My yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. You learn from Me, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. The Apostle Paul took the yoke of Jesus upon Himself. And he knew the very heart of God. It's not just that he knew he was forgiven, but he felt that he was forgiven. There's a big difference in that, ladies and gentlemen. One commentator defined this concept of God's love for sinners as an unquenchable fountain, which that gospel flows and brings this enjoyment, brings this sense, this felt understanding if we're forgiven before God because of our sin. So Paul knew that. And so that's how he can go from being a persecutor of the church, this zealous Pharisee, to a nursing mom. <laughs> or so he compares himself as that. Let's, let's be clear there. So back in our passage here this morning, look with me at verse 4. Here's the motivation. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He's in it. He's there. He's preaching the Gospel because His aim is to please God. He's not trying to win a bunch of converts. He's not coming with greed, impurity, deception. None of that. His sole aim is because He loves God. And it's because God first loved Him. Paul understood that while he was still a sinner, Christ died for him. He penned those words. Romans 5.8 This is the motivation, ladies and gentlemen. So if you're wondering, you know, why you're not sharing the Gospel more, or why you don't feel the need to share the Gospel more, I would just encourage you guys, look to God. Look to the encouragement of what He has done for us in Jesus. Now most of us, when we come to the idea of mission or evangelism, we have people in our lives that we love and that we care for. And, and that's a good motivation to want to share the Gospel with them. But I think oftentimes the fear of man just grips us and makes us terrified to to open our mouths and share the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And it grips us to the point where we start playing out scenarios in our head of the conversation. I don't really know what to say. and Well, what if they have a rebuttal and I don't know how to answer it? Or what if they have an answer and it's more believable than the Gospel of Jesus? And, and we just like 
tailspin out of control in our own heads. Can any of you relate to that? (laughs) And we just psych ourselves out with evangelism. And so let me just encourage you, remind yourself of, of what God has done for you. Look to the Gospel. You are accepted. You are approved. Not based on something that you have done, something that's been done for you. You're secure. You don't need to be afraid of what people are going to think of you. And if they're going to accept or reject you based on their exception or rejection of the message. Paul's aim was to please the one who enlisted him. And let me just encourage you guys, that should be our aim too. And as we seek to present the gospel, let me just share with you, like our aim should be present, not presentations, but it should just be conversations. We don't have to have this like elaborate gospel plan that we write out on a napkin. Those things can be helpful. I've seen people come to faith with those things. But more often than not, people are skeptical of organized religion. <laughs> and so if you have conversations with them and you're able to see where they're at in life, what they believe in, what they worship, what they value, and how that relates to the gospel and how the gospel is the solution for that, that's much more appealing. That's much more appealing. So Paul's chief aim, the motivation of the appeal, is a love for God. We want that to be ours as well. And that motivation of love for God also flows to love for the people that we're sharing the gospel with. And that brings me to my second point here this morning. The method of the community. So, like I mentioned, First Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians what, a, what a mouthful. Holy cow. This letter was penned by the Apostle Paul. Well, If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. It was actually written by all three of these men. Silvanus is Silas, if you're familiar with your characters in in the New Testament. And so what we see here is that Paul didn't just come by himself, nor did he pen this letter by himself, but he had missionary companions with him. Now, Paul certainly, as an apostle, is the tip of the spear, But he wasn't alone. He wasn't alone. And that is emphasized in a major way in our passage with the words we and with the words are, O-U-R. Look at it with me. Verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you. Verse 5, let your eyes fall down there. For we never came with words of flattery. Verse 7, I already hit on this. We were gentle among you. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, and we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden. Verse 10, you are witnesses of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. Verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. So this wasn't, this wasn't a solo endeavor. Hopefully you see this in the passage. Because ladies and gentlemen, I will argue that this is the method for most effectiveness in mission. It's most effective when people see the gospel lived out through God's people. 
It's a hallmark of our church. It's what attracted me here on day one. And it's what, as long as I'm in leadership, it's, it's going to be a hallmark of our church. And it's not to say that mission or evangelism cannot be a solo endeavor. I mean, we, we see that in even Acts 17. After Paul leaves Thessalonica, he goes to Berea, leaves Silas and Timothy, and then he goes to Athens by himself. And he proclaims the gospel to these people at Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And people come to faith. And I've seen it in my own life. I've shared the gospel with one person. He doesn't know anything about me. And he gave his life to the Lord. She gave her life to the Lord. There is value in street evangelism, initiative evangelism. But again, I would just argue that it is best done in community. Look with me at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Hopefully you see it there. These people have become near and dear, not just to Paul's heart, but also Silas and Timothy. They love them deeply. They had a deep care for them. That phrase, affectionately desirous of you, we don't really talk like that. But you know, it reminds me of, of like a love letter written from a, from a husband to his, to his bride. Or maybe to, from, from a parent to a child who've been separated by unfortunate circumstances. There is this deep emotion that's going on here. This deep love and care that is shared by the Thessalonians, but from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And it's because they shared not only the Gospel, which was accepted, but they also shared their lives. Verse 9, He worked among them day and night. It was probably in some sort of trade. He was rubbing shoulders with them, getting dirty, showing them how to make probably tents. He was doing life with them. It bore this, this love, this care, this affection. And ladies and gentlemen, this is why we have life groups here in our church. As Rich highlighted last week, the, the community is maybe not the one that you chose. So you look around your life group and it's this eclectic group of people that you don't have anything in common with them other than Jesus. <laughs> but it is the community that you need as He hit on so beautifully. But it is this community that is on display to the world. And that when they see our lives, when they see us adorn the Gospel, it's attractive. They want to be a part of it. It's what worked in my life. It's what has worked in many people's lives, including your own, in drawing, being drawn to God Himself. So it's the community that the world needs. We have been entrusted with this gospel message. We share it with each other in community. And we also share it with those that God has brought into our lives. And we have a saying here that, that we do that where we live, work, and play. We make disciples. We look to share the gospel where we live, where we work, where we play. For me, the main place that I like to play, other than my neighborhood with my kids, I like to play at the hockey rink. Now, three years ago, I met this guy, Neil, at the hockey rink, <laughs> and it was awesome. 
So Neil, he's a pretty good hockey player. I found myself sitting next to him on the bench waiting to go back on the ice and I just strike up a conversation with him. Hey, what's your name? What do you do for work? How long have you been in Fort Collins? And come to find out, Neil, he grew up in France, Paris actually, and he came to the States for university, studied philosophy, and he moved to Fort Collins a short while ago. And then he asked me what I did. And this is always a unique question as like a vocational pastor. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll answer, well, I'm a preacher and you need to repent, so figure it out. Just kidding, I don't say that. I, I told Neil that I work for a church, and he was like instantly interested. So I was like, oh, maybe this guy's a believer. And so he starts asking me all these questions. And again, this is like a five-minute conversation as we're moving down the bench, getting ready to go back on the ice. I said, yeah, we're part of a, a church. It's part of a greater network. Uh, we're on the west side of Fort Collins. We love Jesus, preach the Bible, want to live in community together. He's like, oh, that's cool. I drive by that church every day. Come to find out he lives like right around the corner here. And then, uh, then I asked Neil, I said, so yeah, do you have any kind of religious affiliation? Did you grow up in church? And he said, oh no, I'm an atheist. <laughs> I was like, oh. And it, it just started clicking in my head. I was just like, man, this guy's like interested in my worldview. But he just told me that he's an atheist. And then he proceeded to tell me that he was a, a nihilist, which if you don't know what that means, it, it basically means that they believe that there's no objective truth. There's no basis for objective truth. So he showed his cards like right away. Well, then we went on the ice and he got off the ice and I made sure I got off the ice so we keep our conversation going. Well, I got Neil's number and I started sharing my life with him. Introduced him to my beautiful wife, Michelle. Uh, we had Margot, our four, fourth child around this time and Neil had never held a newborn. And so I said, here, hold her. He was like, but we'd have him over for dinner. We'd play hockey. We'd watch hockey. He was on my pond hockey team. I introduced him to Brock. I introduced him to Chad, to Brandon. He came to our life group Christmas party. And he's just open to philosophy, worldviews, religions. But he's very intrigued by how we live our lives. And so I was talking with Chad in the locker room one day, and Neil's sitting there and talking about preaching a sermon or something. And Neil's like, I'm coming to your church on Sunday. I said, okay, bring it on, buddy. And so Neil, he's just, he's just putting himself out there. Well, over, over the years, we've, we've gotten to know him, and we've had some real heartfelt conversations. I've continued to invite him to community. He's been to Sunday gatherings. He's been to life group nights. He's a part of our book club. Yes, I'm in a book club with Cole and Joey. And no, you can't be a part of it. Maybe. I'm one voice among many. But we invited Neil, and Joey just loves on Neil. Gets his number. He's meeting up with Neil. And this is, this is a community endeavor. And I love it. Neil's having gospel conversations with him. He reads a Tim Keller book with us. And we're talking about morality. And it's just like, wow, God, it seems like you're really at work in Neil's life. Well, Neil uh, sits Chad and I down for lunch after hockey one day. And he's like all serious. And I'm like, uh-oh, something's coming. He's like, guys, I'm moving to France. 
I'm like, no! And he tells us why, and he and his girlfriend want to move there, and I'm like, okay, Lord, I trust you for this, brother. I trust you for Neil. And so, Neil and I, we've had some conversations since then, and I just asked him one, one night, we're watching hockey, I said, Neil, you know my life. And more than that, you know my worldview. You know that I love Jesus, that I love the Bible, that we preach the Bible, and that I live my life in light of the Bible, and that it doesn't line up with your worldview. Why in the world do you like me? <laughs> Why do you keep coming around? Like, what is it, Neil? And he said, honestly, Daniel, like, when I first met you, I could tell that something was different about you. And then when I met more people in your community, I could tell that something was different about you and that you guys loved me, cared for me, accepted me. And this is what he said. He said that you did not judge me. I was like, that's it. That's it. We certainly have shared the gospel with Neil. And we have shared our lives with him as well. But we have this deep love for Neil. And we want him to know Jesus. It seems like God is at work. We've had great conversations about him maybe getting married someday, what marriage points to, the joys of being a father, the hardships of being a father. It seems as if God is at work in Neil's life. But he's yet to proclaim the name of Jesus. But that's okay. I'm patient. And if Neil moves to France, which he is in a couple months, I trust that God will put people in Neil's life like he's put our community in Neil's life to impact him for the gospel. Gospel conversations, not presentations. We do that as we share our lives, as we love the non-believers in our lives. Now, not everybody is going to be as <laughs> great as Neil, <laughs> but some people will. And so again, we do this where we live where we work and where we play. Here's my application point for you. You take that grid where you live, work, and play and start making a list. Who do you live with? Who do you live by? For you parents, I hope your children are at the top of that list. They are the primary people that God has put in your life to make disciples, to share the gospel with as you're sharing life with them. But more than that, who are your neighbors? And not like Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself, like your physical neighbors. Do you know their names? Do you know their stories? Where you live, where you work, your colleagues, the people in, in your workplace that aren't valued, or maybe you have a common lunch spot or a coffee spot. Do you know the barista's name? Do you know the waitress, the owner of the restaurant? And where you play. For me, it's the hockey rink. What, what is it for you? What, what are your hobbies? Who's around you in those things? So you make this list, and then you start praying for these people. And then you start looking for ways to be a blessing to them. We've been blessed in Christ to be a blessing. How can you bless them? And then you look for ways to bring the community into their lives. It's probably not going to be, hey, come on Sunday. Maybe, and we're open to that, and they'll hear the gospel here. But more than that, we share our lives with them. We share the gospel with them. Amen?
So this is a community endeavor. It's not just you, though you might be the tip of the spear, but the method on which Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the method for us as the Crossing Church is the same. We do this together. We proclaim the Gospel with our lives together. And as we do that, I trust that the Lord will bring fruit. Missional fruit. That's our third point here this morning. Okay, look with me, verse 13. Read it again. And so, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So we see here in this, in this verse, this concept of thankfulness. Also see the reality of a reception or acceptance of the Gospel message but then a continual work of God's Word in the life of His people. So if you have had the privilege of ever seeing someone cross over from death to life, or or maybe even being a part of that conversation where someone says, I believe, it creates a particular gratitude in your life. It creates a particular gratefulness and humility that even though God used you, as an instrument in His redeeming hands, it wasn't because of you. It was because of His grace. And it creates a thankfulness. And that's what Paul's talking about here. We thank God constantly when he's reminded of the Thessalonians. Because it was God's work in their lives. Do you guys know what a herald is? It might be your dad's name, but more than that, a herald, H-E-R, A-L-D. A herald is someone who speaks on behalf of another. Someone who has been given a message and they need to go give the message to someone else. That simply is our role as believers. That's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy did. They brought the Word of God and they trusted God that the results were up to Him. And I think there's a particular freedom here, ladies and gentlemen, that the reception and the acceptance of the Gospel message, it's not up to you. It's up to the Lord. Paul hits on this concept in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God is making His appeal through them. Be reconciled to God. But, there is an aspect that we are called to do. And that's called to verbally share the Gospel. There's the, the St. Francis of Assisi quote that says, uh, share the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Two problems with that. It's always necessary to, to use words. And he didn't actually say it. But fact check me on that. So this idea of gospel proclamation, it's all over our passage this morning. We see it in verse 2. Look with me. We have boldness to declare to you the Gospel. Verse 4, So we speak, not to please man, but to please God. Verse 8, We were ready to share with you not only the Gospel, which means they did share the Gospel with them. Verse 9, While we proclaim to you the Gospel of God. And then verse 12, 
like a father with his children. Another great metaphor from the Apostle Paul. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. But look at that. Look at that next section at the end of chapter verse 12. It's God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. This is God's work. This is God's doing. He wants to use you. You are a means of His grace. He has used me. He has used you. And He wants to continue to use us as a community. The crossing church. But it is ultimately Him. Because He is the one who calls. He is the one who ushers people into the kingdom. He is the one that we will see in glory and know that it was all worth it. And as I mentioned before, when you see the work of God in someone's life and they receive it and they accept it, it brings about this life transformation and it creates this gratitude and this joy. And I saw this when I came on staff at this church. It allowed me to to be freed up and go play hockey at the hockey rink. And when I was there, I met this guy named Mike. Now, some of you might know Mike and his story. But Mike, he's playing hockey, and he liked to laugh, and I liked to laugh too, and so we kind of hit it off. He had a church background, so he was open to talking about spiritual things. And I would invite him to church, and he came, and I'd invite him to life group, and he came, and Then I said, hey, do you want to read the Bible? And he said, yeah, let's do it. And so after building a level of friendship and trust with Mike, he kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit of his life and what he had been living for. And he he called it the skeletons in his closet. (laughs) He's like, you don't want to know the skeletons in my closet. I said, sure I do, bud. And he began to share them with me. And then I spoke gospel truth into Mike's life. And that the things that he had done previously that he felt guilty for, that because of Jesus' death on the cross on his behalf, he no longer had to feel this condemnation, this, this weight that he was carrying with him. And that he didn't have to strive to please God, but Jesus did that on his behalf. So Mike, it wasn't about what you do, it's what's been done for you. And God opened his eyes, regenerated his heart, gave him faith. And it was amazing. His life was transformed. Mike had a daughter from a previous marriage and he wanted nothing more than to have her know this great Jesus that he had come to believe and know himself. We baptized Mike. It was awesome. A few years later, he met a godly woman and they went off on a church plant that we sent off. It's happily ever after, right? Not quite. Shortly after that time, Mike had a season where his health was deteriorating. He could no longer play hockey. Um, and more than that, he, he just couldn't really be active. It was a big struggle for him. Mike was a pharmacist, and so his, his brain had to be sharp in the workplace. Well, he started getting brain fog. and He couldn't really do his job anymore. And it kind of led him into this like really dark valley. He was depressed. But many of you and myself, we, we walked along with him. We cared for him and we loved him. 
Shortly after that, that season of depression, his wife had a seizure, and she went and got her brain scanned, and there's a tumor in her head. She got a diagnosis of glioplasoma and 18 months to live. And the Lord took Holly home this last February. It's really tough for Mike. And so I've, I've walked with him, cared for him, loved him, pointed him to the gospel. And even amidst some of these dark days where he's questioned God, questioned God's goodness in his own life, it's been very evident that God who has called him into his kingdom and glory is still calling Mike into his kingdom and glory. And he will until the day that Mike is not just reunited with his wife, that he's reunited with his Savior, the Lord Jesus. So I was having a conversation with Mike here recently. And he said to me, even in these dark moments, even in his wavering back and forth, he said, you know what, Daniel? I, I really believe that God gave me these trials so that I would praise Him. So that I would trust Him. So that I would live for His purposes. Because he's afraid that if he didn't have those things, that he would just be living for himself. And he would have a selfish view of life and he wouldn't be living for the glory of God. It is God who calls us into His kingdom and glory for His fame because He is a good and He is a gracious King. And one day, for those of us who believe in Jesus, when we see Him face to face, we will know that it is all worth it. That our labors are not in vain. That the Word of God which came to us has been at work in our lives. I saw it in Mike's life. And I continue to see it in Mike's life. So the appeal of the Gospel, it certainly is a verbal appeal. But it's not just a verbal appeal. It's one that comes from a motivation of love through the method of the Christian community as we love each other and love those that God has put around us where we live, work, and play. And as we entrust ourselves to a good God who has called us, I pray that He's going to do big things through our church, through you, because you've been approved, you've been accepted, you've been entrusted with this gospel message. And if you're here this morning and you don't know what that gospel message is, let me just take a moment before I land the plane here. It's pretty simple, but there's, there's a depth to it. The gospel is something as simple for like a swimming pool where a toddler can walk into and wade around, but it's also as deep, deeper than any ocean that we have on this planet. And simply, I like to share the gospel with God, man, Christ response. Who is God? He created everything. Not just what we see, but He created you and He created me. Who is man? We were created in the image of God, but we rebelled against God. We didn't want anything to do with Him. And so because of our rebellion, what the Bible calls sin, it has separated us from Him. And we have worked 
time and time again to get ourselves back to God. That's what the Bible talks about, expresses all the way up until Jesus comes. And Jesus came. He was sent by God the Father to be the solution for our sin. What has separated us from God. And it's no longer what you need to do for God, but it's rather what has been done for you through the life, the perfect, sinless life of Jesus. His death on the cross, which was the death that we deserved, but He took it upon Himself. And then the powerful resurrection. That gives us hope. Even in the face of brain tumors, we have hope. So this is the Gospel message. And I encourage you, as we talk about God, man, Christ, that you would respond. That you would come to Jesus. That you wouldn't just have this mental recognition that your sins can be forgiven, but that you would come to know Him personally. And that He wants to be with you. And that He will never leave you and never forsake you until that day that you see Him face to face and you're with Him for all of eternity. So that's it. That's all I got. We'll land the plane. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I am grateful for this passage. I am grateful for this church. And I am grateful for the grace that you have shown each and every one of us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray for those that are here that are struggling, that are suffering. Lord, that they would find hope in the gospel here this morning, hope in the resurrection. And Lord, I pray as there are many people in our lives who You have called us to. There are people that You have um, put in our lives where we live, work, and play that You want us to play a role in their life to introduce them to You. Lord, I thank You that it is ultimately not up to us. But more than that, I thank You that You invite us into this work. And Lord, would it be our aim Would it be our desire? Would it be our motivation to please You as we step out in faith to share You with other people? And would we grow in our love for them? Would we do that in the context of our community, in the context of our life groups and friendships that we have in this church? And Lord, would You use it to draw more and more people into Your kingdom and glory for Your fame and our joy. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.